there is a mountain in eastern Turkey known as Mount Ararat. It's a beautiful mountain, towering 17,000 feet above the Turkish frontier. It is also the mountain believed by many to hold one of mankind's greatest mysteries. For ever since man first began to write, it has been written that Mount Ararat was the landing place of Noah's You're listening to Canary Cry Radio, and here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. This is episode number 59. Today we have a, a special guest, Aaron Judkins, who is a researcher. He's an explorer and professional archaeologist with a PhD in biblical archaeology. He's worked with human fossil footprints for 15 years and is credited with mapping the longest dinosaur trackway in the Western Hemisphere near Glen Rose, Texas. Uh, He's authored and co-authored several books, uh, The Alien Agenda, The Return of the Nephilim, Evolution and Human Fossil Footprints, The Global Phenomenon of Human Fossil Footprints in Rock, and Academic Freedom, Exposing Evolution. And he was actually our guest back in episode number 36. It's Professor Aaron Judkins. How you doing? Basil and Gons. How are you doing, guys? What's up, dude? I've told Gons this before, but I'll just say it here on the air. You're like the Indiana Jones of our like genre of, uh, I don't know, study, I guess. So uh, it's always very fun and exciting to have you in the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me back on. I always enjoy uh, doing the show with you guys it's yeah thanks for the accolade by the way i you know the indiana jones thing is real life is 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 funner i think um <laughs> uh, you know you don't have the the bad guy shooting you you know and, and that's good but but uh i really enjoy doing archaeology <laughs> you know the day that i have a big boulder come rolling after me um Okay, I may just throw in the towel at that point. I guess in, in reality, it's a little <laughs> bit less stressful on the uh, danger side of the adventure there. I've always been told that uh, adventure is just danger with a cooler name. So, there you go. Yeah, you know, when I saw that movie, Indiana Jones, first time, I remember seeing that movie. I never thought, though, I would actually be doing archaeology in the field um at that time and and you know here i am doing this work and and you know that persona kind of follows you and and i've i've just learned to embrace it uh in a way but um you know every archaeologist every good archaeologist has to have a hat and uh (laughs) and i have a hat it goes it goes with me all over the world but you know what's funny is that when I went on my latest expedition to uh, eastern Turkey on Mount Ararat in search of Noah's Ark, guess what I forgot at home? Uh-oh. Not your hat. No. I, f- I forgot my hat. Oh. I did. I forgot it. Did it, did it affect your discoveries uh, this, at all? Did it? Uh, it did. You, did you feel it? It did. It affected the whole expedition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. It really did. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't the same. I mean, I was missing something. And, you know, there was a part of me missing, and it, it, it just ruined the whole expedition. You know, I, I couldn't do anything. Um, oh, I really did leave my hat. I couldn't believe it. And here I am. I'm being filmed you know on a major documentary and in 
and uh, I, I don't have my hat. I just, it was wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I could definitely tell that could have some serious repercussions, in a, you know, especially in a scientific finding sort of way. You never know when something's buried underground and you're just about to find it. It looks up at you. It's like, that guy's not wearing a hat. Nope. I, <laughs> I, and not to mention the fact that I'm losing a lot of my hair, you know, and... and uh, <laughs> So I use it to hide my head a lot of times as well. Right. Well, but, that doesn't uh, help. Yeah, we did fine. I, that hat's been all over the world with me. I have more than one, by the way, and and I just didn't bring any of them. This <laughs> is stupid me. I by really, the way, thank a lot for your voicemail we got there a few episodes back. We played it at the beginning of one of our episodes there. It's good to hear from you. And it reminded us that we got to get you back on here and hear about your adventures. So now, when you left us that voicemail, you were you had just gotten back from where? Mount Ararat? Yeah, I was over in eastern Turkey for six weeks. And we just completed a major expedition in the search for Noah's Ark uh, and uh, working on a major documentary. And it let me tell you, that... That was probably one of the hardest expeditions I've ever been on in my life. Um, I knew it was going to be hard, but when you get over there and you see the thing, you know, it was about four or five days before I actually got to see the summit. It's always socked in by clouds and can't ever see the top. And about four or five days after I got there, I finally got to see the summit. It's a clear day, beautiful. I got to see the top of the mountain and my heart sink because i realized i'm fixing to have to climb this mountain seven thousand <laughs> feet and even though i had prepared and trained hard for three months and i mean i knew what i was getting into but when you get there and you see the thing it's just intimidating right and um but yeah that's, it was it was a it was a great adventure that's funny now okay so you got to this place you didn't have your hat you found out you had to climb this huge Mountain. So what exactly were you looking for? Are you looking for Noah's Ark? What kind of, uh, I don't know, equipment did you have with you that you had to hike up that mountain with? Yeah, well, this was, um, this was the search for Noah's Ark. It was one of the uh, last major pushes. I was invited to come on the team as a consulting archaeologist. Um, and we, this was probably the most comprehensive and scientific expedition in the search for Noah's Ark. Ever. And that being said, you know, this was all hands on deck. And we wanted to, you know, do as much work as we could. And it took a lot of effort. I mean, logistically, it was it was an incredible amount of equipment work to get everything that we need, just prepare to make the summit on the mountain. And then we had the film team as well. I think we broke the record for bags and luggage and equipment at the summit of Mount Ararat. I don't know about any other mountain, but I think we broke the record at least for Mount Ararat. Um, we had a lot of equipment that had to go up. And uh, so logistically, it was, it, was, uh, it was quite complex, but we, we did it. We managed and, and we, we got to the top. Now, I, right. I, I know that um, a couple years ago, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Randall Price. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I know that he had tried to do a similar um, expedition up there at Mount Ararat. And I know he had a lot of trouble getting these sort of credentials and working out some of the uh, 
the logistics as far as, you know, getting allowed to even go up there. And then also the weather. Um, I, I recall Dr. Price talking about how difficult it was and challenging it was because of the weather and some of the, uh, even some of these, these sort of pirates, these sort of like gangs that kind of, you know, come after you if you're not careful. Did you run into any of that? Oh, yeah. Well, Dr. Price was, he's our lead archaeologist on this project. Uh, so it's the same, the same expedition. Uh, now, this was my first year to go. Uh, Dr. Price has been on the, on the project for uh, several years now. Yeah, I had actually been invited about three years ago in 2010 to attend the excavations um, and the expedition there uh, in eastern Turkey, but was not able to go, unfortunately, at the time. It just takes, it takes money to go, and it takes some time. And both of those factors were not, uh, not allowing me to go in 2010, but I had always stayed up to date on the research. However, in 2013... That changed, and I was able to go. This was the last major search for the ark, and, and I'm going to be on it, you know, no matter what it takes, and, and I'm going to do this. And so, uh, yeah, I expected to meet Dr. Price in eastern Turkey. Uh, however, he wasn't able to get there, and um, um, matter of fact, I called him from the summit after we got to do uh, doing the drilling up there through the ice and the glacier and and um, uh, he was on standby to come had we, you know, found, you know, some ample evidence, some pretty hard concrete evidence for him to, to show up. Um, and, you know, that's a hard mountain to climb. And, and Randall's, you know, he, I don't know how old he is, but, but a lot of these guys have climbed the mountain several times. And, and it's just not an easy task to get up there, that's for sure. But, yeah, you know, you, Randall's right that, this mountain has a permanent ice cap on it, multiple glaciers. It's um, 200 feet thick in some areas, uh, covering some 22 square miles. And, and this ice goes from the summit down to about 13,500 feet. Now, the summit's about 17,000 feet. It's one of the largest land masses on the Earth, and I didn't know that. Um, the weather is, uh, it, it plays a factor uh, it, it sometimes it, it goes from clear and then one minute it goes to, you know, cloudy and, and snowing, um, wow. at the, at one of the 14,000, uh, feet camps there on the, on the mountain, it just started sleeting and, and snowing pretty quickly. So, and then of course there's lightning, there's glaciers, there's crevasses, there's, uh, wild dogs, there's boulders. And there's, um, you know, there's some skirmishes between the Turkish military and the PKK that are there on the mountain. And uh, now this year there was a truce between the between them. And so we heard, although we heard rifle fire sometimes, but um, the truce was holding while we were there. Thank God, and and there was no active fighting that we know about there. So it, it can be quite dangerous. And and Randall's right. There's a lot that goes into it. And some years they may say you can go and you get there and they won't let you on the mountain. They know where you're at at all times. They, they know who you are, where you're at and what you're doing. They're right. always watching you, but, but it's a, uh, it's quite dangerous to be up there. There was, there was a Scottish climber about two years ago that went missing on Ararat. He, he was climbing up there by himself and, 
and uh, which is not what you're supposed to be doing. Now, I don't climb mountains for fun. There's mountaineers and there's uh, mountaineers and there's alpinists and people who do that for fun. I don't do that for fun. Right. <laughs> I did it because I had to and I had to climb that mountain. But look, there's, I mean, that is, that's some pretty hard stuff. And right. and these guys go and climb. And but one of the golden rules in climbing, I understand, is you don't climb by yourself. Right. And unfortunately, so, this this uh, this one particular man had done that, and then now he's gone. He's missing, and they'll probably never find him. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. So now this obviously was physically a crazy thing to, uh, to, uh, you know, undertake. But so what is the whole theory? Um, what's, uh, Dr. Price's theory and what's the, what were you hoping to accomplish up there? And, um, what sort of, I don't know, experiments or, or what sort of, um, actions were you actually taking and why? Well, you know, going back through history, there is, some 500 ubiquitous flood legends around the world. And they're very impressive histories that are passed down. And it's even coded into the Chinese language. So, for example, uh, the Chinese word for a large ship is eight and persons and boat. So their word for large ship is eight plus persons plus a boat. So this is this is found all over pretty much in every culture of the world. And there's a lot of flood stories. You go back to the epic of Atrahasis in 1635 BC and uh, the famous epic of Gilgamesh. And so you have a lot of, of history, including Josephus in the first century and Jerome and, and a lot of these guys. And within, I guess, the last 200 years or so, there has been multiple eyewitness sightings. Now, our job is to go and try to confirm if people are seeing anything on Greater Ararat. Uh, there's been reports, incredible reports, I might add, from uh, people like Ed Davis in 1943, who said he was taken up to see the art. Colonel James Irwin, who is our Apollo 15 astronaut, and he says he flew over a structure while flying in the military, and he was so convinced that when he retired out of the military NASA, he made some half a dozen trips to Greater Ararat in search of Noah's Ark. Uh, so s- people are seeing something up there. Uh, so there's been a lot of expeditions to see if they can find something. Um, and so our job was is okay. Let's you know let's take all this history. Let's take you know the best known evidence that we have combine it with satellite technology and ground penetrating radar technology which you have to get to the top by the way when you use that um and let's throw all the science that we can let's take people from multiple disciplines and let's throw everything we have at this and see if we can't confirm at least you know a structure on greater errat and 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 you know and verify it so so our job was to confirm and verify and document if there's something up there. And and that's what we set out to do. And you were filming the whole thing. You had a film crew with you. Now, is that what is that, a Discovery Channel crew, or who do you have with you? Well, we had one of the major documentary film crews. Um, I can't release who they are yet, but um, but it's one of the one of the major networks. And um, they accompanied us on our journey to document 
this whole thing from from start to finish. And these guys were really incredible. Uh, Great guys to work with. They've had experience in climbing. Uh, They were kind of a conglomerate. Uh, Some had worked for the BBC. Some had worked for the History Channel in the past, National Geographic. Uh, So they had been around they know that field but they they they're experienced in mountaineering and so these guys went up to document and and just to basically tell our story tell the story about the search for noah's ark and um and so, so i'm really excited to be a part of that be a part of the history right so i guess you're saving some of the good stuff to come out on the the uh documentary there and you're not going to let us in on your findings <laughs> Well, I can talk about some things in general. Um, the The documentary will be out in the spring of 2014. And, you know, it seems it seems funny that 2014 seems to be, you know, the central theme seems to be about Noah's Ark and the flood. Uh, there's huh. several documentaries coming out on this. Uh, independent, couple of independent documentaries coming out. Um, of course, there's the, the, the one Hollywood movie that's coming out with right. starring Russell Crowe. Now, that's not going to be factual uh, by any means, and it's not going to be uh, probably anywhere close to the biblical account. But the, the theme, nonetheless, is, seems to be you know, pervading for 2014, and this just happened to be something that we were doing. And it, it's fallen in line with, it, with, with all this other you know, stuff. So um, that's quite interesting. But this documentary is going to be out, and um, it's going to tell the story. I'm, I'm really excited to see. I haven't, you know, of course, I was in the thing. But, but to sit back and see how this is all put together is a whole other thing. And so for me, it's, um, it was quite a journey to just see how all that's being done and right. and to be on both sides in front of the camera and behind the camera it's it was kind of neat to see that you know right and, and if, to my understanding this noah's ark movie the blockbuster coming out they uh, portray noah played by russell crowe as a environmentalist of some sorts to my understanding so we'll see how that turns really? out but yeah oh yeah that's hilarious i had not heard that yeah wow. so that's funny so you know i don't again we don't know how much you can get into but if i recall correctly because i uh i remember you know looking into a lot of what um uh, dr price was doing a couple years ago the ark was was seen in you know in a glacier type situation and and i guess it was split in half if i recall correctly or something to that degree what is uh what are some of the eyewitness reports that people have uh reported that you guys were looking for that gave you guys the clues as to you know what to search for what to look for oh sure well if we just fast forward to the modern searches and sightings there's some 200 sightings um they go back to 1904 by the person uh, named George Hagopian. And uh, George Hagopian, he was an Armenian that claimed to have seen Noah's Ark at least a couple of times when he was a little boy in 1904. And he says that uh, his uncle took him up there, took him about eight days to get up there. And uh, he describes seeing a structure up there. And um, he was interviewed in, nineteen, I think, 1970, to tell about that, uh, what what he saw. There's other accounts, but one of the one of the most um, detailed accounts is from Ed Davis in 1943. Now, Ed Davis was a U.S. sergeant in the Army Corps of Engineers during World War II, 
And he befriended a, a group, uh, a family there by the name of Abbas. And he did some favors for this family that really not only helped the family, but helped the entire village. And they were really indebted to him. They felt indebted to him. And as a way to honor uh, Mr. Davis, they decided to uh, take him to what they call the Holy Ark. And so the Abbas family, the leader of this village, sent his um, grandson up. I think it was a son or his grandson that sent um, sent his family up to see if the ark was visible. They came down several days later and, and said, yes, it was. And so um, Ed Davis gives this, this detailed, incredible account and this description of seeing the ark broken in two pieces. It is what now is known as the Ed Davis uh, Valley or the Ed Davis Canyon. And he said that he's, he didn't get to go all the way to it. They, they couldn't reach it. But he saw it from a close distance, and he described it as being in two fractured pieces. Um, and one of those fractured pieces is one of our target areas that we were looking for. Now, unfortunately, since 1943, um, a lot of ice, and I'm, I'm guessing between 60 to 90 feet of ice has filled that valley. So, you know, when people ask, why can't you just hike up there and see it? And Well, number one, it's not easy to get up there. Um, to there, and and it's and it's under a bunch of eyes. Uh, a great example of that is in 1943, the very same year, the military had to abandon some some um, aircraft in Greenland during World War II. They ran out of fuel. They had to ditch the planes in Greenland. They had to leave them there. And since 1943, those. Uh, aircraft was um, buried under some 260 feet of ice, and but they found them. They found those aircrafts. Now, they had moved because they were in a glacier. They had moved some, I think, a half a mile to a mile from their original location. But they found those aircrafts, and they got them out intact, and they took them out piece by piece. Uh, so is it plausible for the that canyon to be filled with some 60 to 90 feet of ice? And the answer is yes, uh, it is. So, and of course, you know, there's there's satellite technology that, you know, indicates that it may be broken in more than more than two pieces. Uh, so if there's anything there, it's being fractured. Now, the Horry Gorge blew in 1840, uh, which is, some, you know, it's deeper than the Grand Canyon, uh, I think it accounts for like a quarter of the mountain being blown out there. So, um, it, matter of fact, it, it destroyed one of the um, monasteries at the base of the mountain. Uh, so prior to 1840, people were saying, well, in the written history, that they saw it intact. After 1840, they're describing it, such as at Davis, in several pieces now. That's amazing. So that's sort of the 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 legacy of what evidence and tales that have led up to your guys's recent experience up there. Now, you know, it's obviously been a huge deal for people to get up and take a look at the ark or what people claim is the ark. Now, why can't somebody just jump in a helicopter and fly up there and take a look? Why does it have to be such a big expedition? Oh, well, that's been done, actually. Now, in the past, in the late 80s, early 90s, that has been done. It's hard to, number one, 
historically, the fighting between the, the Turkish military and the PKK, which is the Kurdish freedom fighters fighting for what they call Kurdistan independence, uh, has created havoc on the mountain. So any military or any uh, aircraft flying around the mountain, because the PKK controlled that mountain, typically right. gets shot down. Um, oh, they shoot first and ask questions later. So that has made it very difficult to fly. Secondly, uh, to get up high enough, you have to, um, you really have to have a helicopter. You can't do it in, in, in a fixed wing aircraft because you really need to be able to hover and fly around. And, and in a fixed wing, it's harder to do that. Right. Uh, but in a rotor aircraft, you can, but the problem with a rotor aircraft is that Number one, the air is very thin up there, and when you have to get up to 14, 15, 16,000 foot in a helicopter, you're in danger of losing lift. Right. And, um, and so the air is very thin, and it's very difficult for a helicopter to fly that high. And number three is that the winds are, are just ferocious up there. Uh, the, the team told me a couple of years back that, uh, while they were on the summit, the wind gauge broke at 100 miles an hour, totally destroyed the tents, um, and we we nearly lost some team members that year. Wow. Uh, so it's it's uh, the winds are her- just ferocious, and you know uh, when you get into winds like that with a helicopter, it makes it very dangerous um, because they can slam that helicopter into the mountain. Um, and then plus the, the, the aircrafts that was used at the time was some old Russian uh, Sikorsky uh, uh, helicopter aircrafts, and, and uh, they're huge. They're huge aircraft. So there's a lot of factors going into just flying around. It has been done, and, and a number of, of um, sorties, if you will, were, were flown around the mountain um, back in the late 80s, early 90s. But it's just so hard to see something from the air. You've got clouds, and and you're you're way above it, and you really need to be hands on at eye level on the mountain to really confirm and verify anything. And right. from the air, maybe you see rocks that you think is a structure. It's just really hard. Other than some great aerial photography, maybe it's really hard just to confirm anything from. From there now, what we wanted to do was take a you know a remote what do you call like uh, a little helicopter and put a GoPro on it. Mm. Yeah, we wanted to fly that thing in and 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 get some aerial footage up in there, but but um, unfortunately we couldn't get it past customs, and and uh, so <laughs> they wouldn't permit us to what is, <laughs> to what have a it in. This thing <laughs> that's interesting. Well, now, yeah, to them they call it. Yeah, they call it they call it a drone, you know, and, and <laughs> we try. Yeah. To so now, okay. So without giving too much away, I mean, let's just say you go up there, you do some drilling, you take some samples, you find the ark, and you can, you know, and now it's in a documentary, and you put it on TV. This is all hypothetical. I don't know exactly what you found, but now, what kind of impact do you expect? I mean, obviously, finding the ark, Noah's ark, has got to be a huge thing for the world. I mean, that would sort of, if you can definitely say that that is the case, and let's just say you find some, I don't know, fossilized zebra poop or something to like really, really set it in there. Um, <laughs> right. What, what, I mean, what, what does that mean for the world, in your opinion? I mean, obviously, it's got to be huge, right? 
Oh, well, I can't say that we found the art. Um, you know, we, you'll have to wait for the documentary to come out. But, but look, it, when the art is verified and, and discovered and can be confirmed and objectively and independently by others, uh, 100%, um, it, it, it will be a game changer. Uh, it's going to change everything we know about history. It's going to change everything we know about archaeology. Because, look, if that, if that structure, even a part of that structure is up there and it fits the description of Noah's Ark given in Genesis, uh, people ask Ed Davis when he was telling about his account, they said, how do you know that was the Ark? And Mr. Davis said, well, I don't know for sure there wasn't a sign next to it that said it was Noah's Ark, but I can tell you it was a wooden boat and it had three structures on it, three levels right. in it. And what I mean, what is anything doing up there like that? It'll change everything we know about history because if it confirms the Genesis account, it means that those 500 ubiquitous flood legends around the world in almost every culture of the world isn't legend now. It, right. it, it moves the legend to fact. It's it's hard concrete evidence that's empirical that can be verified. And it'll change everything we know about history because, look, it's going to change the course of archaeology. It'll change zoology, geology, paleontology. It'll change all those ologies, if you will. Right. Um, because it'll, it'll show, hey, that, that is true. There is something up there. It'll change the course of what we know, or it should change what we know, and it'll make people draw a conclusion either hey, okay, well, I, I believed it, but now I have some evidence to, to say that it's fact, or it'll tell people, you know what, I don't care what they found up there. It doesn't change my belief. I'm going to believe what I want to believe, and, and it's not going to make me change my belief in the Bible or Christianity. It'll force people into to either in one of those camps philosophically, theology-wise, uh, and... Um, I think it'll be one of the greatest uh, finds ever in archaeology. It'll be one of the holy grails. Um, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls was pretty much the number one archaeological find up to date, in the, uh, which was found in the 20th century in the 1940s. That still holds. Right, but and even so this... It changed I, the face and course of archaeology. Yeah, I would even argue that this would be even greater, whereas the Dead Sea Scrolls are, you know, a, a, um, a version of, you know, sort of what we have now, but a, a written literary piece of evidence to some things we need. Well, Noah's Ark would be physical, actual evidence to back up the stories and the literary things that we we find all over the world. So I think this, in my opinion, would be even a bigger game changer. It would be. It, it would be the biggest game changer of them all. This would confirm Josephus' uh, writings and his antiquities in the first century. It, it confirmed Jerome. It confirmed all those ancient historians. It would confirm Ed Davis in 1943 and Hepgonian in 1904. It would confirm all these all these stories of, of people seeing something up there and i think you're right it it would it would be the biggest and greatest archaeological find ever and that's why it's so important because look mainstream's not going to go look for this you have to be you have to be out of the box you have to think out of the box and you have to be willing to have your paradigm challenged now for me 
uh, I believe the Bible already. I believe in Genesis, so I don't have to find the art. I, I believe that it's there. Now, as a scientist, I need to confirm with some empirical data that I can prove my point. But as a belief system, I don't have to have that. I, I, it's called faith. And so I believe that. But it just doesn't hold as great a weight if you don't have the evidence uh, for non-believers and, and, and people who, who are not Christian or right. atheistic or agnostic, etc. So uh, that is one of the reasons why we uh, are looking to see if we can confirm this because most, most archaeologists, most geologists are not going to go do it. Right. I'm willing to go do it. I'm willing to go see if we can find it because, look, what happens if we do find it? What happens right. if we do confirm it? Yeah, it's going and, to be one of the biggest things ever. Yeah, and what a timely moment to find it too. I mean, if if this is something that happens soon, there's already so much jibber jabber on mass media because of the uh, Hollywood movie Noah's Ark coming out. You know, it's already kind of a punchline. You know, oh this this guy put a bunch of animals on a boat and uh, God killed everyone else and. What a crazy story these Christians believe, you know. But if the actual thing is found at such a timely moment in history, it could have earth-shattering consequences, at least in my opinion. Well, even the natives over there around the mountains of Ararat. Now, the Bible does say that the, the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, which is plural. doesn't mean that it landed on greater Ararat. And, and we have people who think that it landed on Mount Judy in Iran. Uh, we have other people that says it's it not there. It's at another site about 30 miles from there that Ron Wyatt uh, claimed to be right, Noah's Ark. Yeah. I went to that site, and unfortunately, it's not Noah's Ark. I'd be the first one to stand up and, and proclaim it from the mountaintops. You know, that's it, because that would save me a trip up the mountain and put my life in danger. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> but it's just a nat unfortunately it's just a natural geological formation. I know there's still people that advocate for that and they're they're you know they they fully full heartedly believe that's Noah's Ark. But independent geologists have gone and archaeologists and they, they just can't confirm it. It's just a natural formation. But but uh, even the people over there uh Ararat means that the uh, it means the region of eight. Uh, so, and even a lot of the towns and villages are named after Noah and his sons, and 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 the whole thing pertaining to that. So it's it's quite amazing that this is one of the oldest uh, written stories that we have in our history. Um, you know what's amazing to me though, that in Matthew twenty four, it says, "For as were the days of Noah, so will." Be the coming of the Son of Man, because yeah. in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And then the day when Noah entered into the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and then swept them away. Right? So will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's Matthew twenty four thirty seven, I think through thirty nine. Now here's something very interesting. If Noah's ark were a fragment or a section of that. It is found on Greater Ararat in eastern Turkey, confirming the biblical account in the book of Genesis. That may play in 
in helping fulfill end time prophecy. Mm. Well, when I realized the significance, the impact of what this is going to do, if and when it's found, it's going to be staggering because this may help usher in what we know in eschatology in the book of Revelation, this whole Matthew 24 prophecy coming to pass. And look, that will be a testimony frozen in time for some 43 to 4,500 years waiting just at the right moment for someone to come find this and to confirm it and to, and for God to reveal it in his time and to say, look, this is true. What happened back then, this is true. And what's coming down the pike is going to be true in Revelation. Wake up. Yeah, and that's actually sort of the direction I wanted to take it because if this thing is found, I would imagine that the conversation about the Nephilim is a close uh, second, if you will, to the topic of the, the ark, uh, because, you know, the questions will come up. Well, r- well, really, why did the flood happen? And, um, even within the church, you know, there's, there's a back and forth going on with, you know, this isn't, this doesn't matter. Or, you know, uh, you know, we were just, you know, we were just running around bad people. So God wiped us out where others believe more that, you know, there was something going on with a gene pool, you know, contamination with, uh, Satan going around trying to, uh, ruined the messianic line so that the redeemer can't come. And so there's, there's different views on this. I would imagine that that, uh, that whole paradigm of the, the Nephilim paradigm, if you will, is, is going to, you know, become a very important conversation as it already is. But if the ark is confirmed, I mean, that's going to, I think, even make those discussions even more heated. Um, I would imagine, but, um, I have a couple questions. One's, you know, one's a little bit more, uh, I guess mundane if we're, you know, start talking about the Nephilim, but you mentioned geology. What is the scholastic view of, you know, the geological history of, of the area? Because if the Ark did land somewhere around the mountains of Ararat, that means the water, right, was, was covering, I mean, you said you were 14,000 feet up. So I would imagine, you know, several thousands of uh, feet were covered in water at one point. Is there any geological evidence to suggest that and what's the what's sort of the the scholastic view of um of uh, you know how that area was formed okay yeah that's a great question now i'm not a geologist but i i know a little bit about it right yeah i i, I know you're not but i just wanted to you know poke your brain see what you knew about it yeah well that's a great question let me see if i can answer it the the mountain a greater Ararat, is at just under seventeen thousand feet now uh what geologists have told me is that they think at the time of Noah's flood, and if you say 43 to 4,500 years ago, guesstimate, okay, that mountain was not 17,000 foot at that time. They estimate it to be maybe 10,000 foot at the time. Because of um, um, uh, uh, that mountain is actually volcanic in nature, and it tends to grow over time. It tends to, to thrust upward over time. So... Uh, what they have told me is that it's not as high as it is now. It's about 10,000 feet is what they're estimating. However, the Bible does say that the, mount, uh, the, uh, the floodwaters um, uh, went over the mountaintops. And so there is evidence for when I was at one of the mountains, uh, not on Ararat, but one of the local mountains nearby, I was about a mile up, and I found indexed, um, uh, fossil marine shells, uh, 
um, up there on the on the top of that on the wow. top of that mountain. I collected a bunch of them, and I have them. Um, those are only uh, laid in a sedimentary deposit. Now, the standard uh, view from mainstream geologists is that the Earth was formed um, in, uh, say, billions of years in the geological record. They measure it in billions of years uh, and millions of years. So the universe, they measure in billions of years. The, the geology and the rock strata and the fossil record, they measure in millions, hundreds of millions of years, which is a process they call uniformitarianism, that everything was laid down in very uniform, very slowly, very gradually, over millions and millions and millions of years of eons of time. Um, and that's the process that they said that, that formed the rocks and the, the earth. Now, the contrasting view of that is that, um, that everything was created in six days. Now, I have to say there's seven different theories in creation alone. You have old earth versus young earth. You have the age versus progressive. Uh, you have others that, that we won't get into here, but, but the earth was created and it has an appearance of age. But what's the common thread and the common theme is that there was a flood and the flood is a more reasonable, logical explanation and a model for what we see now in the geological record and the fossil record, that this thing was not laid down over millions of years and eons of time, but it was laid down very rapidly uh, by the flood and deposited all these uh, strata and layers very rapidly and the fossil record that we see today. That's why there is um, uh, no evidence of evolution uh, past the Cambrian all the way up through the layers even today there is a, what they call stasis, which means that there's nothing being evolved. It's all records of dead organisms right. that, that can't prove evolution. Uh, so uh, you have this explosion of life in the Cambrian, and then there's just a record of uh, dead organisms in the fossil record. A bat is still a bat. Scorpion is still a scorpion. Um, you know, we, a clam is still a clam. We still have these same creatures uh, today. The coelacanth is a perfect example of that. They they said that was Jurassic. It lived during the time of the dinosaurs. It went extinct. They found it in the fossil record. Yet, fishermen off the coast of South Africa in the 1940s caught a living coelacanth. And right. they let it go before the scientists could get it. And they said, hey, next time you catch one of these, let us know. It was some 15 years later. They finally caught one. They, they The scientists said, we can't believe it. This is supposed to be extinct. But what they didn't realize was is these creatures, these coelacanth fish, they look prehistoric. And by the way, they claimed that um, because they look so prehistoric in the fossil record, they said, well, those fans were used to grow limbs, and they crawled out on the earth, and they became terrestrial creatures. And then they didn't want to become terrestrial, and so they went back in the ocean and became <laughs> whales. It's some yeah. kind of fallacy and fantasy and made up, you know, story that they. But look, the coelacanth is still a coelacanth in false record. It has not changed, although it looks prehistoric. Those fins were never limbs. They're still fins, and they're they're they they're vertical feeders. So they're stabilizing fins because they're vertical feeders, and they live some thousand feet down. National Geographic a couple of years ago sent some divers down there. And, and, and filmed them for the first time in history, a school of them. They're huge. 
They're beautiful creatures, beautiful fish. But the point is, is that there's evidence for a global catastrophic flood called the deluge or the noetic deluge, and there's just not evidence for this uniformitarian uh, process that they claim that the evolution brought all this about. So there is a very contrasting view, and there is evidence that that uh, that we see all around the world for a worldwide flood. Yeah, I mean that it just seems for you to just find actual seashells up up you know in the mountains and stuff. I mean I, I don't know what their I mean what's the secular explanation that they have? Like how do they try to explain that? Do they have one or? Well, I think they tried to say that you know there was a localized flood flood from the Black Sea, which is nearby. And that floated that flooded regionally or locally. Um, and look, they, they tried to give an explanation on this, but they discount all the evidence worldwide for a global flood. They right. discount the fact that there is um, index fossils. Uh, you know what's interesting is when I was coming down Mount Ararat, when I was descending the mountain, Dr. John Bryant, who um, who was one of our scientists, he is um, licensed as a, a geologist and a cartographer and a geophysicist. He did our ground-penetrating radar. And on the way down, he noticed in the basalt rock, there's some huge boulders. It's all basalt, okay? And embedded in this basalt rock is, is wood. And, huh. and Dr. Bright looked at that, and he said, look at this. This is wood embedded in basalt rock. And I said, explain that to me. He said, I can't. As a geologist, I can't explain it. He said, the only explanation I can give you is that this was embedded because of water and the wood being impressed, uh, impregnated into the rock. Now, how, do you, how does that happen unless wow. there was a worldwide flood? Right. I've got a picture of that on my Facebook page. Uh, if you go to Man versus Archaeology with a VS on Facebook, Man versus Archaeology, I've got pictures. You'll have to scroll down. But I've got pictures from that trip on there, or you can go to my website at AaronJudkins.com. And I've got a picture of that wood embedded in basalt rock. Um, because at, And that was a rather large piece. We saw more pieces of this, but this was one of the larger pieces that we found. So uh, Dr. Bryant told me, as a geologist, the only explanation for this is if there's a worldwide flood. And it seems to me, it seems ironic that geologists and, and secular scientists will deny a worldwide flood on this planet when we're covered by 70% of water and most of the things unexplored in the sea, yet they'll say Mars was flooded by water in the past and say, well, we found some evidence for water, so Mars must have been flooded, yet deny there was a global flood ever on this Earth. Now, explain that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Just, I'm just saying. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> He's just saying, everybody. No, wow. And I think that's that's exactly the point with this. I mean, I, I, I've talked to some people, and, you know, there's been some... Uh, the media has sort of played up um, these previous ARC findings that didn't necessarily turn out to be absolutely true. And, you know, some people just say, well, you know, okay, so you found a big boat. What's, I mean, what's the big deal? And I think the, the point is that if Noah's Ark is truly found, and if this is something that you guys 
uh, are getting closer to here, then absolutely everything changes. Evolution changes, the history of the world changes, um, even linguistically things, uh, stories built into the very fabric of the human psyche. I mean, it just is a huge, huge game changer. And I think that's very exciting. And I'm sure you feel the same way as you're huffing and puffing your way up 7,000 feet. Oh, well, 17,000 feet. Is that uh, yes, right? It, yeah. it, it was probably the most physically challenging and mentally demanding thing I've ever done in my life. I, I, you know, I nearly gave up a couple of times, to be honest. I just didn't think at 16,000 feet, the, the altitude hit me. I just, I just didn't know that I was going to make it. And I got up to the summit, and then the weather was terrible. The conditions were miserable. I was miserable. It was just harsh. And this old boy from Texas ain't used to being up at 17,000 foot on a glacier, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> you're instantly in survival mode uh, for, you know, just the basic essentials um, for survival. You know, warmth, uh, heat, water, shelter, food. And, you know, when you're at that high altitude, you're not hungry. Uh, I went three days without eating. I never missed a meal because I wasn't hungry. That's wow. just altitude. Uh, you have insomnia. You battle insomnia every night. You're battling to breathe. You wake up in the middle of the night, struggling for breath sometimes. Uh, it, it, it's, it is really a, a harsh environment up there. Right. But you're right. This was an expedition that really... I think is probably the most comprehensive and scientific expedition ever done in the search for Noah's Ark. Well, good. That's very good to hear. And I'm excited to uh, see what you guys found in the documentary that's coming out um, in 2014, you say, huh, there? And we'll be able to check it out. Yeah. You know, if we follow you on Facebook, you know, you'll keep us updated to when that comes out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If the people okay. go to Facebook, they go to Man versus Archaeology with the VS. Um, right. Or they can go to my website, AaronJudkins.com. Right. Uh, I'll have it announced there. By the way, I'm thinking, people just ask me if I'm going to write a book on this. You know, I've written books, but books are very time-consuming to write. Right. Um, and, um, but you know what? I wrote a journal, uh, which is the first time I've ever journaled. Um, and I'm thinking, people ask me, are you going to publish a journal? And I'm thinking, you know what? If I get enough interest... Um, I may consider it. Uh, it. It'll be kind of in a grill style journal. It'll be personalized. I'm thinking about putting some photos in there. Just you know, the day to day count of the of the expedition, and really kind of be on that journey with me. Um, it'll include the field notes, and I mean, I'm really thinking about doing it. If I get enough interest in doing it, it'll be, you know, it won't be mass produced. It won't be something like you can go to Amazon buy. I don't think I'm going to do it like that. If I can get interest, it'll just be something that, Hey, I'll, you know, personalize and, and you'll have all the things. And then, you know, the pictures and some, some extra things in there and I'll mail you one out. I'm thinking about doing it because people are asking me about it, but you know, I kind of like to have some feedback on it from your listeners. Oh, uh, so if they want to go to my Facebook page at uh, Man vs. Archaeology and comment, hey, we want to see a journal. We'd love to have it. Um, we'd love to order one, have our own copy. I'm thinking about doing it, but I really need some feedback on it um, if I'm going to do it. Plus, we're doing a contest, by the way. So if you share the page with a couple of two or three people, we'll enter you in for a free DVD on my latest documentary that I did on Hidden Mountain and the Los Lunas 
mystery stone. Boom. So uh, we got that contest going on. Yeah. There so. you go, Canary Cry listeners. Make sure to go to his uh, Facebook there, share his stuff, get his DVDs, and hit him up for a little bit of that uh, journal action. Now, speaking of which, now that we're talking about books, I mean, you're, you're, you're not just a fossil guy. You've got the Aliens Agenda, the Return of the Nephilim, Let's just get a little bit into your your Nephilim stuff here. So what's your opinion with the Nephilim and what does that I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you know, I like your your tie that you were talking about when, you know, if, if this is found and confirmed, it will have to will have to look at the subject of the Nephilim in a greater light. And um I think you're right on that. Because look, by the time you get to Genesis six the creation of the world was in Genesis 1. By the time you get to Genesis 6, it's all screwed up. Right. There's wickedness abounding on the earth. God saw that man's wickedness was man. Uh, of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord repented that he made man. And this is all in Genesis 6. You can go read it. But look, by the time you get to Genesis 6, you're only five chapters in, and the thing's already... That, that creation's already rampant with evil. So, yeah, we have to look at this Nephilim again, and the reason I got interested in it is because, look, when you're going through the archaeological record in the history, you, f- you see evidence of these, you know, greater-than-normal, large, larger-sized people with six fingers, six toes, in some cases, double rows of teeth. You even see them in the uh, uh, the North American Indian, the Native American Indians, talking about these these guys, the Paiute Indians, the Sioux. The my great grandmother was a Choctaw Indian. Uh, they have a legend account of the giants. And in that in that chapter, I wrote for L.A. Marzulli in his book on the trail of the Nephilim. I talk about these things in the chapter that I wrote there about the Nephilim and on the trail of the Nephilim, if you will, um, about what these things are. Yeah, there's there's some evidence for this, and there's ample evidence, I might add, for the giants in history. So, yeah, Genesis 6 is going to play into this because, look, the, the, the subtitle of my book is The Return of the Nephilim, right? which means they're going to be back. And right. why are they going to be back, and what are they doing? Uh, that all plays into the end times. And so I didn't really have that big of a focus on it but when i saw the tie of the nephilim and this whole ufo connection thing and the evolutionary connection associated with it it blew me away yeah because when i saw that tie for the very first time it became clear the bible says that we look through a dark a glass darkly sometimes um it's the it's the uh what is it the the um the glory of God to uh, conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to, to search it out. Look, there's, there's truths that when you begin to search these matters out, they become very crystal clear. And what's happening in Genesis 6 with the Nephilim is going to happen again when Revelation plays out in future history. Right. These guys are going to be back, the return of the Nephilim. Right. right. Now, obviously, with, with Genesis 6, we know that it's the sons of God. Now, what is your opinion on who the sons of God were? Uh, because, you know, there's the Sethite view, which, um, you know, most of the people listening to this show and, and myself included, 
uh, we re- you know reject this idea that they were just the Sethites and they married the line from Cain and, and there you go you have a uh, two lines of human but somehow they produce these giants but it doesn't really mean giants it's you know it just means uh you know these evil people or whatnot again that doesn't really play out in my mind with my uh study of the bible but what is your opinion on who the sons of god were and part two to the question is do you think they are part of the return of the nephilim as well very good question you know i've done a lot of research uh, on on this, when I was writing the book, co-authored with my um, my colleague, Dr. Michael McDaniel, uh, who brought the theology and the eschatology side of the book, uh, which was a great combination, by the way. Um, but we talk about this in the book. We talk about the line of Seth theory. Um, and, and look, when we go through that, you're going to understand that this godly line of Seth argument there is no such thing in the Bible as a godly line, especially from Seth. Right. So if that qualifies to be a godly line, um, then there has never been an ungodly line of any kind on the planet. Does that make any sense? Yeah. The Bible never defines the sons of God as a godly line. The sons of God are defined in, go to Job chapters 1, 2, 1 and 2, and go to Job chapter 38. The sons of God, it tells you who they are. They are the ones that are present before Adam is created in Job chapter 38. Right. And they're also those gods of Psalms uh, 82 and 89. Yeah. And note that there's a flood context in there, by the way. Psalms, go to Psalms 82 verse 1 and Psalms 89 verse 6. Note the flood context. These sons of God were around before Noah and what they are doing is um, they are the the sons of God are the angels. The sons of God are are uh, described to us in the scripture as um, those angels and the angels that were present even before creation. Now we know a third of those angels fell. We describe all this in the in the book Alien Agenda: The Return of the Nephilim. But the 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 line of Seth theory does not uh, hold any truth to it. There is uh, what they call the fallen angel view. That's another theory that is called the fallen angel view, that the third of the angels fell, and um, and they intermarried with the uh, daughters of men, and those offspring, the physical offspring, became the Nephilim, the Nephilim. And that's um, where we see that uh, the, the Nephilim first appear in Genesis 6. So these are the, the offspring of the fallen angels that fell with Lucifer in Genesis 6, um, verse 4. And it talks about the giants in the earth, and in those days um, that they bear children into the, um, to the daughters of men, and they became old men of renown. Right. And so uh, we, we walk you through what the Nephilim are, how they got here. Uh, matter of fact, the Book of Enoch, which was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, talks about the 200 watchers that came down on Mount Hermon and what they were doing. It names every one of them specifically, and that sin that they uh, were attributed to specifically 
with men, what they were doing. They were imparting forbidden knowledge to man to thwart them from worshiping the true creator. Right. Our audience is probably pretty familiar with those things. And yeah, I mean, they talked about uh, cutting of the root and dashing, um, you know, a child in the womb. And I mean, just terrible things that are going on there, which is quite incredible when you think about, in my opinion, the sons of God are, you know, the the term with B'nai Elohim being the Hebrew, it just really, it means a, a direct creation of God because, um, yes. uh, you know, it says that Adam was a son of God. Uh, you know, distinct from the only begotten Son of God, which, of course, Jesus uh, is. But n- now, okay, so I'm trying to, you know, try to get a grasp of this. And I know I'm, some people have struggled with this idea as well. But how do we understand, uh, as far as the sons of God, were they physical beings, o- only physical beings, as, as far as, you know, just as physical as you and I? And if so, are we talking about a pre-Adamic race? Or are we talking about maybe perhaps uh, some spiritual beings that left their domain, as some parts of Second Peter and, and Jude uh, describe, left their domain to become physical beings, and therefore, you know, them mated with human women? What are we talking about? What is your opinion on on who these guys were, as far as because it says, like you mentioned in Job, that they were around at the creation, you know? So, you know, yes. are, are they physical? Are they just spiritual? Are they both? What What is your opinion? Uh, they can be both. They're they're created celestial. Now the Bible says that things are created terrestrial, which is what we are. We dwell on the earth, and things celestial. So, as we are created a little higher than the than the animal kingdom, which God gave dominion over. He gave Adam dominion over the 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 animals in the earth. The angels are created in an order just higher than us. They are created spiritual. They are not flesh and blood. They were created. That's why there is no redemption for the fallen angels, because God came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, in the form of man, flesh and blood, who redeemed mankind by that redemption of his blood on the cross, which can never be done for the angels. Right. That's why and that's why in the book of Enoch they said, Hey, would you they begged Enoch, go before the Lord and because we committed a grievous sin. See if there's any way for us, any hope, any redemption. And Enoch said, You know what? All right, I'll go do it. But you know, I don't know. He came back and said, There is no redemption for you. Right. That's why the fallen angels are 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 can never be redeemed. Now, um, the reason I say they're both is because they were created celestially. But they can take on physical human form. The Bible says that we entertain angels unaware. Right. They're always in the Bible in the Old Testament. They're not described with angels with wings, although they're different classifications of angels, such as a seraphim who have six wings. These angels um, are always wingless males, and they always appear in, in, in human form. Matter of fact, in the in the um, in the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and the men of the, of the city went out and said, "Who are these two strangers? Right. Uh, let us in that we may know them." To them, they didn't look like angels; they looked like two uh, stranger, uh, strange men that came into the city. Strange men that just foreign men, people that weren't part of that town or 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 area. Um, uh, and and look, the angels had to blind them so they could get out of there. Uh, 
Abraham entertained angels and said, hey, you know, asked them to stay and eat a meal with them. Jacob wrestled, wrestled an angel and refused to let him go until he was blessed, right? Right. These things can appear physically. Here's what happens in Jude, though, chapter 1, verse 6. Those angels that said that left their first estate, they did not keep their first estate, but left their own habitation because they were going after strange flesh. They committed a sin that they were never supposed to do. They they cohabited with the daughters of Adam. And because of that, they were going after strange flesh, and they created this race of Nephilim, which polluted the deep. Look, the Son of God can never come through a virgin birth if your genetic line is through a demonic fallen angel line. That's just not going to happen. Right, right, exactly. So in Jude... But in Jude, it says they left their own habitation, and when they did, they can never go back. They were stuck in that physical form. They can never go back, and they died physically. But those spirits became disembodied spirits who always seeks habitation. That's why uh, when the demon of Demarnia uh, came out and met Jesus uh, when he went, sailed on the other shore of the Sea of Galilee and came out and he said, hey, don't torment us before time, you know, send us into the pigs because he's, they're always seeking embodiment. That's disembodied spirits. But the angels can uh, come in physical form. Um, and, and there's no question about that. That's biblically in the Old Testament lines it out very clearly. But they are celestial beings um, and um, um, when when they're able to, um, when these fallen angels are able to do the same thing, they can transform. But when they left their habitation, they left it for good, and then they they were trapped in the in in a physical state at that point. Not all of them did that, by the way. Right. Um, but but uh, does that answer your question well, yeah, on absolutely. on the sons of God? And by the way, let me just. Let me just add, the sons of God, you said Adam was the son of God. Yes, he was. But look at the definition of the, of the sons of God and the spelling, the little s, sons of God, and the capital S, son of God. Uh, so there, there is some uh, difference between the two, between Adam uh, being a son of God and between the angels, sons of God. Right. Um, and the Bible says that the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation. Those angels shouted for joy. So we walk you through this whole thing about, about what this is, the sons of God and the Nephilim, how that all ties in in, in the book Alien Agenda, The Return of the Nephilim. And, and um, we, we not only talk about that, but we talk about the history, how the UFO phenomenon plays into that. We talk about... Uh, are they natural or supernatural? We talk about the Sphinx and the cherubims and, and how that plays in and, and this forbidden history and then how this is all going to play out in the future. And um, I think it just is a different perspective on this that not many are talking about. There's a few of us talking about it, but um, I think this book gives direct answers. I really do. Absolutely. And yeah, we're <laughs> the few of us that are talking about it are, are you know, some, some corners are calling us heretics, but um, you know, of course, First Corinthians six three uh, says that you know, Paul tells us that we're going to judge angels. So, you know, when Adam was created, it's possible that Adam 
was actually higher than the angels because, you know, I believe that the, these, these sons of God and these other angels were supposed to serve man t- to some extent. And, you know, Satan didn't want to really do that. And so he convinced a third of the angels to, to follow him and say, Hey, no, I, you know, we're the, we're, I'm supposed to be the highest created angel here, not this Adam thing. And, uh, you know, I think the rebellion sort of started there, but, uh, uh, you know, just wrapping it up here, moving towards the end. Now the end times. Now you do you believe that these sons of God are returning as well, that, uh, they are going to, these, these fallen angels are going to remanifest, uh, their angels that are going to leave their estates again and cohabitate with women. Do you think it's already happening? What's your opinion there? Oh, well, yeah, make no mistake about this. We write about this in, in, in the book, uh, in, in the last chapter called the end game because, um, yeah, the fallen angels, yeah, sure, they're going to play a role into this. Um, because, look, there's a, the last, um, um, well, there's the coming battle of Armageddon and the, and the tribulation. And this whole prophecy that's given in Daniel uh, that, that says that, you know, the Antichrist will cause craft to prosper in his hand and will magnify himself. And, right. um, and, and look, there's, there's things that's going to be happening that God's going to send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. It doesn't say a lie. It says the lie. They're going to believe the lie. And I think the UFO and the fallen angels are playing a part into that because they're, it's, a, it's a foreshadow of the great deception to come, of the lie that's going to come. It's a foreshadow. Right. And so what we're seeing is, is yeah, is the Nephilim going to be back? Is the fallen angels, what are they doing? Yeah, you know what? I think they're already doing it. Because mm. instead of doing it like they did in Genesis 6, look, they're doing it a different way now. All they have to do is, uh, you know what, to those people that they can. And by the way, Christians are not susceptible to this. Um, and we, we write about it in an account about... Um, uh, about a lady who was abducted who claimed to be a Christian. She was the only case that we could find. All the rest of them were not Christian. And she said she was abducted. She gives a story. But turns out that later she became, and she said, you know what, I really wasn't a Christian after all. But when they, she wished for an encounter, number one, mm. she wished for it. And when they came, she just gladly gave herself over, and they had control of her. Um. What they're doing is they're taking seed. They're taking seed mm. from people. They're taking it against their will. They're very malevolent. Uh, James Carmen, who's the director of The Hidden Hand, interviewed me, and he asked me this question. Who do you think they are? And I said they are malevolent in nature and evil in origin. And they are. Three to five percent of these cases that cannot be explained by natural or military um, uh, or civilian me- uh, aircraft, uh, Three to five percent of these cases are unexplainable, and they are terrifying events. Terrifying. We detail some of these in the book, um, um, and and we we let people know what's going on. They're doing it again, but they're not doing it like they did in Genesis six. They're doing it in a different fashion. They're just abducting people and taking seed. Right. But they are gearing up. Think think Lord of the Rings here for a second with me. They're gearing up for a battle. They're gearing up and they're creating um, maybe transhumans, what's called trans, transhumanism. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe these Nephilim are going to be part of that. And that's why I think the Nephilim's going to be back. There's a particular scripture 
that we give and we show you why I think the Nephilim, it's not my opinion, by the way, the Bible talks about this and spells this out, and why those Nephilim are going to be back. They're gearing up for a battle. And what people are seeing experiencing is very real, but is it is on a spiritual level. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, wickedness, rulers of darkness. Look, those are hierarchies of things that's in the spiritual realm. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And what just as there's hierarchies in heaven, you have a king, and then you have the prince. And then you have you have the hierarchy of the kingdom, and we're part of that kingdom, by the way. But there's a kingdom of darkness, and they have a hierarchy. They have the generals and and the and the and the soldiers. It's all what I like to say. Uh, L. A. Marzulli calls the the cosmic chess match. This is all being geared up. And look, those are principalities and powers, and all that is given that Paul spells out. Those are hierarchies of powers, and we have to understand, just as in Daniel, there is a spiritual battle going on here. When Daniel prayed, and he said, and Gabriel came and said, hey, I came the very first day to answer the prayer, but I was withstood one in 20 days, and now, he said, I was withstood by the prince of Persia, and now i got to go help Michael, because now the, the prince of Greece comes. These are principalities behind nations, right? Yeah. and there's principalities behind America behind all all the nations and and there's things going on behind the scenes that we don't see but this is a very spiritual battle so yeah this is all going to play in it's happening because look there's Satan wants to usurp the throne he wants to be just like God in those five I wills in Ezekiel I will be like the most high I will sit on the sides of the north I will be worshiped those five I wills in Ezekiel. I think it's a. Uh, he I, has Isaiah. usurped the earth. Well, yeah, it's 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 Isaiah. But it, go ahead, yeah, that's it the may five be I Isaiah, and, and I stand corrected on that. Um, but look, Satan has usurped the earth temporarily, but the coming king is coming back to take it back and take possession of it, and not only the earth but the heavenlies as well. And when this happens, this is all going to play out in the book of Revelation, which I believe we're rapidly approaching the end times. And we have to prepare our hearts, not just physically in our families and our minds. We have to prepare our hearts um, and, and make sure that we're, um, that we're doing everything we can and that we're right. Uh, because when this thing comes to pass, it's it's going to be bad. It really is. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. But there's hope, and we offer hope in the book. There's always hope. And the hope is, just like that Noah's Ark was a testament to people who could have missed the coming judgment uh, in Genesis, there's a hope that people can get on the coming ark, and that is the salvation of Jesus Christ and miss the coming judgment that's going to come on this earth. And um, and so that's the message of hope. It's the gospel of the grace of God that is the good news of Jesus Christ, and that he is alive, and he's resurrected, and he is our only way out. He's our salvation and redemption, and only by him uh, can we call on God. And uh, that is the message of hope. We have power through his name over every. Thing that comes against us, not by our own self, 
by our own means or by our own will or power. But through the name of Christ, we have power uh, to overcome and live a victorious life. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it's really cool to hear uh, just, uh, you know, an archaeologist out there looking for Noah's Ark, you know, but then behind it, all these all this theology that uh, seems to line up with a lot of where uh, we are and a lot of uh, our thinking on this show, um, which is very cool. And so uh, we appreciate you being on the show. Basil, you want to wrap things up here? Oh, sure. There you go. We'll make sure to get on the ark, everybody. Um, Aaron, thank you once again for being on the show. This is just fantastic talking with you for the second time. Double doozy here. Yeah, yeah, so it's been great. I really enjoy doing the show with you guys. And I love listening to Canary Cry Radio when I get a chance. Um, uh, you guys do a fantastic job, and uh, I promote you uh, wherever I go. So thank you for doing what you do, and keep up the great work. I absolutely, really Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. And together, we will um, you know, shine a little bit of a light here where it needs to be shined and good luck on the rest of your adventures everybody listening now is my i'll consider it a personal favor if you keep um professor aaron judkins in your prayers as he is gallivanting around with our other friend la marzuli as they go down to peru and uh check out some elongated skulls and things like that yeah absolutely thank you for that and uh keep us in your prayers um, for sure on these expeditions and uh, that we're, we'll stay safe. And and, uh, and you know what? I enjoy feedback on Facebook, so let me know about that journal if you're interested. And, uh, you know, if you got anything that you want to share, comment, just let me know. I'm, I'm very open. I'm, I appreciate feedback from uh, the people that follow me and um, hope to keep uh, you guys updated on the future events of what's coming in 2014. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep us posted and maybe give us another one of those calls from uh, Peru. Keep, you know, let us know how you guys are doing down there. All right. On. I'll keep it real. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, everybody. So once again, that was Professor Aaron Judkins, archaeologist extraordinaire on Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to go to Aaron Judkins com and go to facebook.com and search for Aaron Judkins and uh, check out his work. It's very cool. All right. We we need anything else, Gons? I think we're good. Do we do we get the website right there? AaronJudkins.com, right? And then Facebook.com slash man versus archaeology, right? Is that right? I just said search for Aaron Judkins. I probably should Aaron, you still there? Uh oh. I think we his connection got Did he just bail? No, that... no, no. He's he's there, it's just not connected. Oh, interesting. The Nephilim got him. No, oh, it shows me he's gone. Oh, he showed you before he showed me. Oh, oh. Okay. Oh, there should, he is. There he is. Okay. Should, should we call him back? Yeah, he's Where's, there. There he is. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. I'm so <laughs> I totally dropped right. I'm glad yeah. you did it. Did it at the end if I had to do it, not during the show. Thank you. So that was perfect timing. You're probably <laughs> <laughs> like, God, wow, he's just really in a hurry to get off. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's embarrassing. I was like, where did it go? I, it just dropped. Anyway, well, hey guys, thanks 
for having me on again. I enjoyed it. Had a lot of fun. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for coming yeah, same on. Here. Always a pleasure. And keep us updated on all your stuff. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. See Take you. care. All right. Good The views and opinions expressed by the authors and guests on this program are not necessarily those held by the hosts of Canary Cry Radio or its community. Make sure to visit canarycryradio.com for show notes, episode archives, forums, and more. You can contact us by clicking on the contact tab or emailing us directly at canarycryradio at gmail.com. Please leave us a voice message by clicking the tab on the right side of canarycryradio.com. Make sure to let us know if it's okay to play your message on the air. Make sure to rate us and write a review on iTunes. Give us a thumbs up on Stitcher. If this episode touched your life, your worldview, or your beating little heart in any way, please consider supporting the show financially. You can do so by visiting canarycryradio.com and clicking on the support tab. There, you can sign up for a small monthly donation, or if commitment's not your thing, you can make a one-time donation in any amount. Canary Cry Radio is and will always be free, so your support is what keeps us on the air. Make sure to catch the next episode of Canary Cry Radio, and until then, think outside the cage again. Oh, my God.